Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside... Connor Bautzazor. And today, we're going to be giving you the scouting report for the upcoming matchup between your Kansas State Wildcats and the Baylor Bears. So, let's just not dance around it. Let's get right into their 2020 stats, which, uh... Yeah, you'll you'll notice a difference between last year and this year. But as always, I will cover the offensive statistics. They were a two and seven team last year. That includes conference play. They were eight. They had eight hundred and thirteen rushing yards at a clip of two point seven per attempt. Yikes! Eight rushing touchdowns. Ugh. Nineteen hundred seventy nine passing yards at a clip of five point nine eight per attempt. 8 interceptions to 14 passing touchdowns with a completion percentage of 61.9, a third down percentage of 33.1, 31 sacks allowed, averaging 23.3 repeating points per game at a total of 210 points. So that is an absolutely anemic offense last year. Bad. Very bad. I, I don't know what else to add. Other than there's not a single good statistic here. Like, literally none. I mean, they were positive in interception to touchdowns. Not by as much as you'd like. Not by as much as you like, but... 14 to 8, I guess, yeah. But, I mean, that's the bare minimum. Like... Yeah. So... And it's not like they had a freshman QB or something either in the COVID year. That Charlie Brewer, who's like... He was like a fourth-year starter, I think, at that point. Yep. It'd be like a Skylar Thompson just like had an unbelievable regression and just was actually terrible, but that did not happen. Luckily, so, that's not a reality. You've yeah. got defense. Yeah. Defensive, uh, they gave up 29.22 points per game, total 263 points against them across the season. They gave up 1,827 passing yards and 12 touchdowns through the air. They also gave up 1,624 rushing yards and 20 rushing touchdowns. Uh, In the red zone, they were scoring 24 of 37 times they were there. Had 12 interceptions to the defense, 5 fumbles, 19 sacks for a turnover differential of 8. Yeah, so defense has a couple of head-scratching areas, but was generally pretty good, especially generating turnovers. And uh, in terms of who they brought back, we're just gonna skip the first name because it's Jacob Zeno, and you can that makes that tells you how long ago that the notable returners section was written preseason. Uh, but they're bringing back their leading receiver from last year, R.J. Sneed. Their second leading rusher, Tristan Ebner. Their best player on defense, Jalen Petrie or Petre. I think it's Petrie. It's gonna be Petrie. Their leading tackler from last year as well. Christian Morgan, the tie for their interception leader, and they also bring back the other person that tied for it, which is J.T. Woods. And in terms of what they've lost? Uh, they lost William Bradley King, a uh, tie for first in sacks on the team. He was drafted. And then they lost Charlie Brewer, their starting QB of the past few years, who transferred to Utah and has since also transferred from Utah because he was usurped and transferred literally like a day later. So... Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> so, on the schedule, they are a grand total of 8-2 and two, with wins against Texas State, Texas Southern, Kansas, Iowa State, West Virginia, BYU, Texas, and Oklahoma. 
Their two losses have come against Okie State and Texas Christian University. Both of those games were away, so please show up to the stadium. Your break, if you are a student, can start a little bit late. I promise you, no one will be angry at you. Except for me, if you don't show up. So, take be that there. for what you will, be, cowards. Be there, you cowards. Yeah, be there, cowards. But, outside of that, I cover the schedule if you want to cover at least the first half. We'll split it after rushing touchdowns. Sure. Yeah, this year they're 8-2. and two. Uh, Overall, 5-2 and two in conference with the kind of random loss to TCU. Uh, they have 2,558 rushing yards at 5.9 yards per attempt, which is quite the departure from their offense last year. They have 2,156 passing yards at 8.59 yards per pass attempt, a touchdown-interception ratio of 17 touchdowns to 6 interceptions, and at 26 rushing touchdowns. Uh, they have a third down percentage of 40.3%, increase of about 7% from last year. Defensive third down percentage, 32.12%, which is really good. Uh, then 35.4 points per game for a total of 354 points, 199 points against them, which I believe would put them at 19.9 per game since they've played 10 games. Yeah. Easy math. For Dividing once. by 10 is awesome. Yep. And then turnover differential there, plus 5. They have 25 sacks, though the offensive line has given up 11 and... No, 8. 8. 8. Why did I say 11? I have no idea where you got 11. <laughs> There's not an 11 anywhere on here. No. So <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> Red zone defense, uh, they have 88% of the time they're giving up scoring, 63% of the time is touchdowns. Red zone offense, 89% of the time they're scoring. And 73% of the time, they're going to get a touchdown in the red zone. Yeah. So, this is a team that is similar in the good ways of last year in generating turnovers and being positive in the turnover differential, but completely opposite offensively in that they're very good offensively. Yes, compared to last year when they were just utterly awful uh, offensively. Uh, especially in the run game. Uh, through 10 games, they didn't even hit 1,000 total yards as a team, which is just atrocious. And and this year, they have nearly more than, I think, tripled uh, their rushing output through a similar number of games. So, a total flip. Uh, their passing yards are, as I recall, similar? Roughly the same. So There's but, more, but it's roughly yeah. the same. Yeah, and then rushing, uh, just total night and day difference. Yeah. So now, let's get into the official scouting report, starting off with their offensive play-calling philosophy. And I I know what I'm about to say is going to make you cringe because it made me cringe whenever I heard it. They have the corniest possible name for what their offensive philosophy is, and that is the RVO. Oh, wow, that sounds really similar to RPO. Wow, does that involve a lot of... Op- no. It literally just means reliably violent offense. I think that's stupid. It is stupid. It's very stupid. Everyone knows it's stupid. That's a certified Baylor moment. Yeah, Baylor moment. Basically, they're a run-first offense. And this will be a trend that you'll notice that you can compare this team to the Titans and the 49ers in the NFL because it's a very similar offensive system with very similar offensive philosophies. They're very unafraid of running bigger personnel, like two tight ends, which is 
a huge change of pace because I don't think we've seen that a lot since Stanford. Stanford and a little against Iowa State, if any. Like I just, I guess I just think of that because they run the ball a little bit more. But Stanford's really the only time this year that we have commonly seen uh, twin tight ends on the field at the same time. That and ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and they're probably best when they're running that bigger personnel. They're mostly a zone running team, a lot of duo inside, and their most deadly play, which is wide zone or stretch plays. And they borrow a lot from NFL offenses in how they use outside zone to set up bootlegs. There is a reason why I literally called it. This is if, if you don't want to listen to the rest of the episode and turn it off now, don't, please. <laughs> literally just walk away knowing that this is the college version of the Titans. In almost every aspect. That's all you really need to hear, but we can go into their specific quarterback. That is Gary Bohannon, and Connor's got you for that. Yeah, so Gary Bohannon, he is a guy that came out of absolutely nowhere this year because Jacob Zeno was expected to be the guy. But then we have Gary Bohannon instead. Uh, He's quarterback number 11, big arm, uh, is very physically gifted in almost every trait. Uh, He's Jittery in the pocket, though, and his footwork is going to get thrown off very, very easily. Yeah, with literally any pressure, you're going to throw off his footwork. And then also, he's going to be one of, if not the most explosive running threats that we've seen all year at quarterback. Uh, We were talking about this. The only guy that compares really is Jason Bean of KU, and we faced him for maybe a quarter and a half. Yeah. and I mean, we contained him. We did, but that's but, KU. Yeah, and they are they are different running threats. We kind of touched on that as well, where we have Jason Bean, who's basically straight line sprinter. He's very fast in that regard. Gary Bohannon's not quite as fast in terms of straight line speed, but he's very shifty. Uh, I'm trying to think of a K State comparison, uh, kind of like Daniel Sams, I guess, uh, where he was he was still fast straight line, but it was really a shiftiness. Uh, and then you have Delton, who was a high school state champion sprinter, but wasn't necessarily the shiftiest guy. That's kind of the difference between Jason Bean and Gary Bohannon. Yeah. Um, th- his throwing motion is very compact, and it's really quick. Uh, you had you timed it, right? No, I didn't. I, I told you I didn't because I didn't feel like doing what I did with Justin Herbert or Aaron Rodgers. Right, that, that was it. Because it's really the- obnoxious to do, and it doesn't really add anything to know how quickly a release happens. Yeah. It's fast. Uh, throwing on the run, as we've mentioned, it's in his wheelhouse. He's very deadly off of the bootleg. Uh, he has wheels. He has the ability to throw on the run. Plus, it gets him out of the pocket because uh, he does not like being in the pocket. Because Not at all. As a pure pocket passer, yeah, he has a tendency to just kind of let his feet die in the pocket on shorter concepts. Uh, and he's also just downright ugly as a passer when he is under pressure. Uh, he plays with the ball very loose in front of him in the pocket as opposed to high and tight, meaning the football, where he's just holding the ball. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're paging King Felix here. We we want you to pull up here because yeah. he, he just tied the school record for forced fumbles in a season, uh, tying Darren Howard. Uh, this is a great opportunity for Felix to come out and uh, break that record. Uh, and then... 
he welcomes contact when used as a runner on QB power and quarterback draws. Uh, he does look to run outside of design plays, though. Um, also, when it comes to accuracy, he, he's he's honestly like not great. No, he, not. he's just not an accurate passer. No, and that that's probably his biggest weakness in. This is why one of our stories to watch is can K-State make him be a pure passer? Because if he is asked to just pass without any bells and whistles on it, he can make throws, don't misunderstand. He's still, he's not the worst quarterback of all time. And he's not going to Bazooka Joe literally everything. Right. But if he... Is op- if he's presented with an open window, he will miss it more often than he will hit it if he is just asked to do it from the pocket. Yep. That's the weird thing about him. He much prefers to be either in the moving pocket or off of the bootleg, just getting out. And uh, I think they kind of know that as well. Uh, so a lot of their offense designs around that. Uh, but between the ears, he's not the fastest processor, and he's really only going to make one or two reads. Yeah, so basically, Gary Bohannon is someone who's very beatable. And for all intents and purposes, he is the engine that makes the offense go. However, the engine has to have a lot of pieces to make it work as well. And the main piece that really helps this offense, and by extension Gary Bohannon with his freak athleticism, are the twin running backs of Abram Smith and Tristan Ebner. And, you know, whenever Connor and I both going into this year thought Ebner would be the lead back, he's definitively not. That would be Abram Smith, number seven, as opposed to Ebner, who's number one. They're a true one-two punch, though. If you think of, oh, Michael Carter and uh, who else was it for North Carolina? Javante Williams. Javante Williams. They are very similar to those two in skill set and style. And them alongside Sam Howell was the reason why North Carolina was so good last year. Sam Howell is good on his own. Like, he's fine on his own. He'll probably get drafted. He deserves to get drafted. But it's the running backs that really made that offense possible and took a lot of pressure off of Sam. And that is the exact same thing that is happening with Baylor. So... Smith has the more yards of the two, as well as the most touchdowns by 10. So that's how you know he's the lead back. Because uh, right now, Ebner, he only has one touchdown, I think. He only right? has one touchdown. He has 400 fewer yards than Smith. Yeah. But Smith is very good at just about everything except receiving, in which he's just kind of there. So I guess he's Jordan Howard. He's a surprisingly good pass blocker, so if you see him in on an obvious passing down... He's probably just there to block, so it's a longer developing play, so don't even bother putting a linebacker on him. Probably just send him on a blitz. He's also surprisingly fast for how powerful he is, because whenever you think of your traditional power back, you think of more of like a bowling ball type. You think of your your Marshawn Lynches, who don't necessarily have the greatest long speed, but they're very much bruisers. He has very solid speed in his own right. And he's very difficult to bring down on first contact. And he really, really welcomes laying the boom on someone, which is normally something you reserve for linebackers. But no, 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 no. The running back is the one who hits the linebackers in this case. 
and it's kind of terrifying to watch, especially if he goes after, say, Fletcher or Wayne Jones. Like, the only person that I trust to really bring him down consistently one-on-one is Daniel Green. And he also, uh, Smith keeps his legs driving at all times and just welcomes it. And his vision is surprisingly solid, which again is a problem some power backs have of just wanting to go to one gap and then lower their head and just power through everything. No, he's disciplined in his inside zone running lanes in that he will actually read the triangle. No, that's a linebacker thing. He will read the linebacker's and their leverage, and then make a decision where to cut from there. So that's bad enough. But then you have to deal with Ebner. Ebner has a couple of elite, and I do mean elite, traits. First off is his vision, where he just has this innate ability to see holes before they even develop, which is why he's so dangerous in the wide outside zone scheme. Because if he can predict where the hole is going to be on the outside odds are he's going to be able to make someone miss or create a bad angle for a tackle. And second is playing into that part that he creates bad angles. He's very twitchy and agile. And he, third and finally, gets a lot of burst coming out of his cuts. He's a very explosive and shifty back. He's not that back that welcomes contact, but he's that receiving back who can run a lot of outside zone, and can even run a little bit between the tackles. The running backs are the scariest room for me. Because if they get going, we lose. It's that simple. If the running back room gets going, we lose, and we lose convincingly. Yeah, I I think there's no disputing that. Luckily, K-State's defensive strength this year has been stopping the run, uh, statistically. Uh, we're quite good at it, especially in the advanced stats. Uh, they show that we're pretty good at that. I hate numbers. Ace hates numbers, though, so that doesn't matter. That's an inside <laughs> joke. No one's going to get But uh, I I definitely worry about the running backs, but I am happy we have the defensive line that we do. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of Boom Massey this game comparatively to uh, Matlick, who we've been seeing a bit more of the last couple games. Yeah. Uh, but there's definitely a path to victory against these running backs. Yeah. Like this isn't like a hopeless fight. Like they're stoppable. It's just that we can't let them get started. Yeah. Really. So that that's where it's going to really hinge. Uh, but then we can move on to receivers. Um, the main two people. Uh, we've got number nine Tyquan Thornton and number zero R.J. Sneed, the leading receiver from last year, but not this year. Uh, Thornton, he's a better playmaker than a true receiver. His weakest areas are contested catches. Uh, and a lot of issues uh, truly attacking the ball. Catching in general is kind of a rough spot for Thornton, which, as a receiver... Yeah, that's kind of what you want to do. Yeah. Um, he does have legit speed to beat you deep, but route running is fine. Uh, and after the catch, though, is where he's going to shine, thanks to his speed. Uh, he just really needs the ball in his hands. Uh, and there's been multiple times where he has taken a slant route all the way to the house. Um, now you may be asking, hey, where's R.J. Sneed? We watched four games, and those were the four games where R.J. Sneed got, like, two catches, two yeah. catches, no catches, and was out for the game. Yep. Yeah, the four games that we watched, uh, we watched OU as well as uh, TCU 
Okie. Okie uh, State. And then... Uh, what was the other one? Uh, OU. OU, Okie, uh, West Virginia. West TCU. Virginia. Now, he didn't even play the Oklahoma State game. No. And the rest of those games, he was just very quiet. So, we kind of don't know what's going on with him, other than he's not making the impact he did last year. Uh, uh, at least not consistently. So... But he's still somebody to look out for, regardless. You know, this isn't us saying RJ Sneed sucks. Quite no. the opposite. He's actually quite, quite good. good. But we just didn't really get much film on him. Yeah. And you can take the yeah. tight end because yep. my favorite time of the week is very close approaching. Yep. I'll take tight end then. Number 86, Ben Sims. Uh, he's a remarkable blocker who has a shocking amount of willingness and pop. Uh, he's also fast enough to be a legit threat on bootlegs, but he is inconsistent with hands. Are we sensing a theme here with receivers, RBs, where they're very good at run support sort of things or with the ball in their hands, but maybe unreliable hands to actually get the ball. Uh, running backs, they're not necessarily receiving threats. Ebner is a bit more. Ebner uh, is definitely a receiving threat. Yeah, but yeah, then you have Abram Smith, who's not. Taekwon Thornton has a drop problem. Ben Sims also has a drop problem. So there's holes in the passing game, whereas the rushing game is a different story. Yeah. And uh, now we get to talk about, you know, I was worried about the running backs. There's a reason. The running backs are firstly very talented. But it helps when you're running behind a very, very, very good offensive line. And that's what Baylor has. They're very big, very violent, and a very, very good unit. They've only given up eight sacks this year for a reason, and only seven on those were in Gary Bohannon. One was in garbage time with Jacob Zeno. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) But... Let's go from left to right. But firstly, the unit cohesion is the word of the day. They are they understand each other. And that is something that is critical on the offensive line. Because how many times in college, and even in the NFL, that you see a guy just get open on a blitz or on a stunt because the offensive linemen aren't communicating with each other. They don't understand one another's limitations. No, this is a, an offensive line that does not play individually. They truly play as one cohesive unit, which really helps their running game and really helps their pass protection. But it helps when you have arguably one of the best left tackles in the Big 12 in Connor Galvin, number 76. This guy is a left tackle's left tackle. He's probably the best left tackle we've seen in a long time. And if you squint at him, he might well be the very best left tackle that we've seen all year. Coker was a right tackle before anyone says anything. His his foot speed is actually some of the quickest that I've seen out of a Big 12 left tackle. And for reference, I saw him cover a corner blitz, an outside corner blitz, that the corner had three yards of depth against him. And I saw him kick out in about half a second to meet him three yards deep and stop that blitz. That shouldn't happen. <laughs> that that no human being that large should be able to do that with any degree of consistency. And yet here we are. 
It also doesn't help that his hands are extremely strong and they're very good at staying within the frame. He will drive you and he will make sure that you do not drive him because he has his hands on the steering wheel to use uh, a coaching term. And in the running game, he's just a monster. But the only, there is one downside to his game, albeit a small one. He's not the greatest at defending the inside pass rush move. And I think that might be because he's so used to setting to the outside because of everyone's tendency to want to go outside. Because, you know, why wouldn't you? You're not going into the teeth of the offensive line. But there's one person in particular that's on our offense, our defensive line that has done very well going inside. And his name is Felix Andy Uzama. He's not bull rushing him. That's not happening. So he just has to take the inside. Feel free to chime in if you ever have thoughts, concerns. <laughs> uh, yeah, Galvin, big problem. But I am certainly looking forward to the matchup of Galvin versus Felix in true passing situations. Uh, I don't have much else other than that to add because offensive line, I know this is something that you love. So <laughs> it's near and dear to your heart. I'm a sucker so. for good offensive line play. Next up is their left guard, number 55, Xavier Newman-Johnson. And he might be their weakest offensive lineman in terms of strength, but that doesn't take away from how heady he is and how he's constantly keeping his eyes up in pass protection. And like I keep saying, if even if he is the weakest person on their offensive line, the way that they run their zone schemes means that no one's ever left alone, except for maybe the seal guy or the farthest guy outside, but that's a tackle. So th- there's never really a situation where him being the weakest member of the line is going to hurt him that bad. And then you get into their center, number 66, Jacob Gall, which his problem is he's a bit grabby. He's very, very grabby, which you don't typically see in zone schemes unless everyone tries to backdoor, which why would you in a zone scheme? Backdooring means that you don't run alongside, you just try and get on the, the back shoulder of the offensive lineman and try and make a play from there. Uh, most offensive linemen are too slow to actually do that, so it's not advised. But and on the second level, he just seems kind of lost, which as a center in a zone scheme, you don't want. He just kind of floats out in space without blocking anyone. But again, unit cohesion. And then Grant Miller, their right guard, number 63. He's never really beat by bull rushes and him and Gall have this ridiculously good rapport with one another that if one is getting beat the other is right there alongside them to provide a chip block and knock the rusher off balance before eventually moving on to their own assignments and he wants to beat you by long arming you rather than you know with technique which it works so I can't be mad at him but yeah then finally, rounding out their offensive line is their right tackle, Gavin Byers. I'm going to say Byers. Number 58. He's probably their easiest member to get past in terms of blitzing and taking the outside because he struggles with getting hands-on with players a bit faster than him. And my piece of advice, if I were a coach, which I'm not. I was close to being, but I'm not. Uh, attack his arms. He's, he's not fast enough to recover in any part of his game. That if he doesn't get hands on you, he loses. He yeah. loses the rep almost immediately. Because he doesn't have that lower body strength to neutralize a true rush if he can't get his upper body alongside him. 
Yeah, and I know that I talked a lot about uh, Felix lining up on uh, Connor Galvin, but it might be better to put him on Gavin Byers just because uh, I think that's more bang for your buck, probably. Um, unless we just want to run Felix inside every single time, which we could do, but that ends up putting a guy like Boom Massey or Nate Matlick or Tyrone Tallini on uh, Connor Galvin, which honestly, Tallini, if we just make him go inside instead of outside, would actually maybe do well. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> like, because like that's kind of his thing is bull rushing, uh, but a buyers that that is going to be an interesting matchup to watch at the right tackle position. But I'm very interested to see how our defensive line and also linebackers are fair against the Baylor offensive line. Just it's going to be another very interesting matchup. And the last time we had a, a matchup between our uh, front six and uh, a good offensive line. Well, that was TCU, and that went well. So I mean, I, everyone else on TCU's offensive line was just kind of okay. Coker, I'd say the last good like offensive line as a unit was probably OU, but yeah, we we faced individually good linemen, but never one as cohesive as this one. But I've talked for a while, so you can cover uh, which you want to do. Which ones do you want to do? You want to talk about their scheming, defensive line? What do you? How do you want to split this? I'll do a little bit about their scheme and okay. uh, then you take D line. Okay. Then you can because D line is another brick. You can take linebackers and DPs, Sorry. or we can split DBs into safeties and corners. Yeah, because I, I just scroll down to DBs and that's a lot of DBs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we All should right. probably figure this out before the episode, but uh... we probably should. Anyway, oh well. <laughs> defensively, they're another three-three-five team, but they play in a mainly will alignment. Uh, they're going to play a lot of two high looks, which is a little different than what we've been used to seeing because the Big Twelve has shifted to a predominantly three-high safety look. K-State has been doing that as well. Uh, yeah, I know you don't <laughs> like it, but <laughs> corners play much closer to the line uh, than we've seen in quite some time. Uh, despite the above, they're still going to run a lot of zone coverage of many different varieties. They run a lot of quarters, they run a lot of cover three, and they also run match three. Quarters is an interesting matchup for uh, this K-State offense, for sure. And also their corners versus our receivers, that's going to be interesting to watch as well. Um, they use blitzes similar to how Oklahoma State has used them. They're defensive linemen, they're not exactly elite pass rushers, but they eat up a lot of space. And they make things easier for the blitzing linebackers. Uh, and despite lining up in a will alignment, they're not particularly great at handling kickout blocks on weak side runs. In other words, Jack Stanine may catch another murder charge in this game. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but now let's talk about their defensive line because I love me some line play. They're led by the trio of Siaki Ika, uh, number 62, and then number 90, TJ Franklin, number 95, Gabe Hall. Let's start with talking about Ika. Uh, he's a he's their nose tackle, and he's a massive human being. Like, he's just a very large person. He's 6'4", 350. And uh, honestly, he looks bigger than 350. I... That should be vaguely concerning, given that our center is, like, 280 pounds. But. Yeah. But. I have good news. 
technically he's not that great. He does have long arms, so he's another case of just someone who's very big. And he's very good in the principles of run defense. He's very much stack and move along the line, try to create disruption as opposed to getting the tackle himself. His biggest knock on his game, however, is if he gets attacked from a side angle. Because if he gets attacked from any angle that is not head-on, he, no, he's gone. And given that he's a nose tackle lining up in a zero technique or a shade, that should be relatively easy to accomplish. Just have a guard take a shoulder instead of trying to take his inside shoulder, take the shoulder itself, and that way he's, he's just gone. And then slide up to the linebackers and create a cutback lane. Again, I'm not a coach. But, you know, his complete he's a complete non-factor in pass rush. In fact, he gets subbed out a lot in pass rushing downs, which is something you'll notice about this defensive line, is that they have a run defense group and then a pass rush group, which if we were a hurry-up NASCAR offense, I would say abuse, because that's how Oki State did as well as they did. They refused to let them sub out anyone and get themselves into their rushing packages when they wanted the run game and their passing packages when they wanted to pass. But we're not that type of offense. So maybe chalk that up as a negative. But he will either win the rep instantly or instantly lose because he will just try and cyberbully you and long arm you. You can actually take uh, Gabe Hall, and I'll take Franklin, and then the two other random miscellaneous run defenders. Yeah, they those last two guys really are just generic. They really are just like Madden-generated players. Yeah, they're like the random walk-ons that get thrown on during NCAA 14. Yeah. Like, that you just <laughs> never asked for, but you get them anyway. But Gabe Hall, number 95, uh, he comes in mostly for either pass rushdowns or in the heavier packages. He's not exactly fast. Or bendy off the edge, but he does have, he has a nice rip move. Uh, if he's going outside, it's going to be a rip move. If he's going to take you head on, he's going to try a downward hand swipe. Uh, we call that in the biz the reverse forklift. Reverse forklift, because forklift is arms up. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you have TJ Franklin, who is their third lineman. He's someone who's very explosive get-off, but very little else. Wyatt Hubert moment. And <laughs> cut blocking... <laughs> I'm going to get hate for that. Cut blocking him is with just with how fast he plays. If he's in on a rushing down, literally just cut him. Because he will immediately flop. He's not... He plays so fast that that will almost always work. And since his entire game is predicated off of how explosive he is off his get-off, yeah, that's kind of the best strategy. <laughs> Then you have their two random run-defending defensive linemen. Number 96, Cole Maxwell, and then number 90, 98, uh, Chitty... Oh, God. I think it's Ogbenaya. Ogbenaya. Yeah, yeah, Chitty Ogbenaya. They occasionally play, but both mostly in run-defense downs. They're, they're not very good, but, you know, they try... And literally the biggest facet as a defensive lineman in run defense, the most important thing, is that you just try. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that's it. On the defensive line now, you've got linebackers. Yep, they've got a core that's led by number five, Dylan Doyle, and number two, Terrell Bernard. Uh, Doyle, 
he's pretty good at sorting through uh, all of the garbage in the run game. Uh, but where he falters is getting off blocks. If he is touched, it's over for him. Uh, unless he's on the line. The second level, like, touch him, he's done. But if he's on the line, he stands a chance. He's also very smart. He doesn't fall from his direction at all. And he's a great wrap-up tackler. He doesn't really need help with uh, the tackling department very much. Then we have Terrell Bernard. He's very fast and a very good blitzer. He always seems to know the perfect angle of how to rush and just use his motor to get around them. Then we have... The Madden created players. Imagine the two random defensive ends that we just talked about and instead imagine them as linebackers. That's who we're about to talk about. Yeah. Uh, And number 54, Braden Utley, and number 52, Matt Jones. They're run-defending linebackers. They're uh, shifty and smart with how they leverage to duck around blocks. Downside is that they kind of end up being one-gap defenders. Uh, And then in terms of coverage, this group kind of leaves a lot to be desired in every facet. They cover grass as opposed to people, and they have very weak coverage in the flats against running backs. Yeah. What that that can't mean anything particular for us, can it? No. No. We don't have a receiving back. Yeah, we don't have any receiving backs, so maybe we can put Shane Garber back there. Yeah, that'd be nice. Maybe. Now let's talk about the defensive backs. I'll take safeties, or I guess it's in their defensive terminology. One of their players is technically the star player, which, yeah, that won't give everyone a big head if you literally call a position on your defense star. Is that Jalen Petrie? Yes. <laughs> well, he's also the star of the defense. So. The captain of the defense. <laughs> he's the captain of the Marcus Calhoun, captain of the defense. Um, yeah, this is one of the more flexible defensive back rooms we've seen with everyone playing nearly everywhere except the outside corners. Outside corners typically stay where they are. Uh, the downside for them, they're all really, really bad against play action, and they all bite really hard against play action. And that's in part due to their coaching. They're very similar to West Virginia, but not quite as well coached when coming downhill. Like, they will come downhill realize they made a mistake, and then try to use their recovery speed. Uh, One of them has recovery speed. The other one... But now let's talk about their safeties. Their safety room is led by number 22, JT Woods, number 8, Jalen Petrie, and number 4, Christian Morgan. And all of their safeties are asked to play downhill, and they're very good at doing this as a consequence. And JT Woods is a really good run support safety. That's really all you can say about him is he's a good run support safety, a good box safety. But then you get into the star defender, both in terms of position and in terms of status, Jalen Petrie, who acts as a slot defender and very well might be the best player on the entire Baylor defense. He's sent on a lot of blitzes. In fact, This is the only area that I can truly not think of a comparison to a Titans player because Jalen Petrie is literally just Jamal Adams in terms of how he is used in the Seahawks. They line him up everywhere, and he's good at everything, so it doesn't matter where you line him up. He's just going to excel no matter where you put him. You know, they line him up anywhere, but he's best used as a box safety, similar to Jamal Adams again, or apparently as an edge rusher. You know, just put him on the line. Eh, it's 
no big deal. Yeah. Like, don't even don't even put him at slot corner and have him blitz from there. Nah. Just put him as like an eight technique. It'll be fine. And little did we know, it actually is fine. <laughs> yeah, Jalen Petrie is truly remarkable. He brings the entire defense up a lot just by virtue of him existing. But then you get taken down a couple pegs by talking about Christian Morgan, and he can be abused when asked to play just about anywhere. He's not very good in center field because he doesn't have the speed to really play that true center field role. And he can also be abused in man because he flips his hips way too early, and he leverages himself incorrectly in a lot of plays. He doesn't have the burner speed to make up for it. But the most important note with Christian Morgan is I watched multiple games where he bit so hard on play action that it looked like someone, like, there's busts in coverage, and then there is what happens when Christian Morgan is asked to play against play action. It's bad. (laughs) Which is good for us, but very bad for them. Yeah, uh, play action, uh, definitely a common theme, it seems. Mess. Mess. It is time to it break time. out the play action boot. <laughs> it is time forever. But now we can move on to cornerbacks. Uh, they have number 13, uh, Al Walcott, and uh, number three, uh, Raleigh Tejada. Uh, the corners, they're generally going to be asked to play with inside leverage. Both of them have issues dealing with true number one receiver skill sets, though. Uh, Esdale of West Virginia, who we just saw, he carved them up quite a bit. But the best example of this is uh, Clinton Johnston, who had 142 receiving yards and just five receptions uh, against this Baylor defense when TCU upset them. Uh, they also had some trouble with Winston Wright. Uh, Raleigh Co- Tejada is their number one corner, despite only being 5'10". Uh, that frame kind of helps him in a way, though, as his backpedal and change of direction are both really good. Now, he can also be forced into getting vertical too quickly on comebacks and curls. He's really good at staying in the hip pocket of a receiver, uh, but he leaves just a bit of cushion trying to bait throws. But unfortunately for him, he can also get top-shelved very badly. Uh, by virtue of being a five foot ten outside corner. Yeah. Throws me back to some of the later Bill Snyder days where we had the defensive backfield of DJ Reed and Duke Shelley, who are both five foot nine, I believe. Really good corners, both in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Just small. But then, um, you know, Tejada, he's also a very good blitzer. Um, and that's about it for Tejada. Walcott, though, uh, he is a very get low and cut kind of tackler. Uh, he really struggles to get off of blocks um and he can also get lost in coverage at times and kind of like christian morgan will flip his hips a little bit too early and that's about it for walcott so yeah so with all of that being said what are some of the stories to watch going into this game again always in question form and we will be asking the questions and then responding to them so first and foremost Does K-State try and flip the script and try passing more on early downs to take advantage of Baylor's tendency to be a run-first defense in those situations? With how mess called Texas Tech, I would honestly say that is more likely than not. 
I kind of agree. Uh, I like the idea of kind of going back to that kind of uh, past first look that actually really worked well for us, especially against an inferior secondary, or at the very least a secondary that matches up with ours, because this isn't a secondary that's going to absolutely shut down our entire receiver core. No. No, they're okay pass coverage secondary people. And our receivers, while they aren't world beaters, they aren't incredible. They have taken a noticeable step up from last year and even from within this season. So I expect our receiving core to have a, have success uh, at least to a certain degree against uh, Baylor. I'd love to see uh, maybe another baby shot uh, off a play action, uh, especially if we can uh, get Christian Morgan in the right spot with the right uh, personnel package on, but certainly a possibility. Yeah. Then we'll alternate questions. I'll take the sub question for this one though. Yeah. Furthermore, if K-State does get behind the sticks, can they keep Baylor's defense from suffocating them? This is my biggest fear. My biggest fear is we try to stick with the run game too much or try to run inside and have Noah Johnson, all 280 pounds of Noah Johnson, taking on all 350, probably more, pounds of Siaki Ika. I, the way that I would go about it is a lot of trap runs, but that's neither here nor there. The key for this game, with, but uniquely this game, is staying on schedule or passing early. If we get knocked off schedule, I think it'll be very difficult just because of how Baylor plays their defense. Yeah, I... I do agree. Uh, running the ball without success early may be a struggle. Uh, although we have seen some new wrinkles in K-State's uh, rushing attack in the past couple of weeks. Uh, now we've added pitch uh, pitch plays in, which we've seen very little of uh, in the uh, climbing era. So we have those now. Uh, we have shown a tendency to want to try and establish an outside run of some sort which sometimes works, sometimes just doesn't. It ultimately depends on if Noah Johnson's pole block hits, and when it does, it works really well. well when it hits, it hits. And when it hits, it hits. When it doesn't... It doesn't. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh, we lost five yards. <laughs> That's basically how it goes. You're just kind of gambling on Noah uh, hitting his block. But, um, I don't know, it remains to be seen, because uh, I'm interested to see what angle Mess takes with uh, attacking this defense. But we can move on. Uh, how does K-State try to attack the bootleg pass from Baylor? This is an interesting question because there are like 15 different philosophies just for the bootleg pass. And it's not really something we've seen a whole, whole lot of this year. We have yet to see an offense exclusively built upon it like Baylor's is. So this will be a genuine challenge for Kleinerman. If I had to predict what they will do, it'll be because their mantra for the past few weeks has just been play fast. So what I think they'll probably do is they'll always try and keep someone the opposite side of the tight end and then just send them on a blitz always and then just go for the quarterback as quickly as possible because... 
Bohannon's not good under pressure. And while he may be able to duck the rush with how shifty he is, it's grow under pressure than it is to try and cover the leaking tight end. Yeah. If I had to guess, I that's what I would say, but I don't know. I think there's there's not a much better way I can think of to do it. Uh, like Because like you said, there's a lot of different ways that you can cover it. But furthermore on this, can K-State contain Bohannon's uh, ability to run the ball? Contain, yes. Stop, no. Because Bohannon's going to get his on the ground. Even against... Like, some of, like, even against a top-tier defense, he will get hits. The problem will, the goal is to just contain it, to make sure that it doesn't hurt you in critical situations. So, just, it's going to happen. Don't freak out. Try to prevent it from happening in gotta-have-it situations, which sounds obvious. That basically just boils down to don't get beat at the wrong time, but... It, it, it's just about containing Bohannon. How do you think that'll end? Um, I, I'm kind of with you, where I don't think that we're going to be able to completely halt Bohannon. I mean, even Jason Bean had his one good run, and he probably would have had a couple more if he had been healthy the entire game. Uh, but for the most part, k actually did quite well in uh, preventing Jason Bean from taking off. Granted, a lot of that came from their absolute absolute terror of having to face Felix and Yudike Uzama right after his six-sack performance. Yeah, that probably generated a bit of fear. Yeah, because you could tell immediately in their passing philosophy because they were getting the ball out quick. And uh, that that shine is uh, worn off, despite Felix still being an excellent pass rusher. Um, So uh, I'm looking forward to see uh, how Baylor utilizes Bohannon uh, in terms of this, if they're going to maybe do anything more designed or if they're just going to leave it to him scrambling, which remains to be seen. But... I do like K-State's chances, uh, especially in a later downs if we leave someone on Bohannon, which is honestly probably worth doing. So I'd be interested to see who we pick to do that. Perhaps the Reggie Stubblefields of the world. Yeah. So can the next question is, can K-State stay competitive in the trenches on defense? I... I think so. Staying competitive, again, we'll. I think K-State manages to stay competitive just by virtue of having Timmy Horn and Felix NUDK. I feel like that third, like, hand-in-the-dirt lineman spot is going to be the biggest question because the most stereotypical answer you could probably give would be Boom, but I'm not sure if Boom matches up that well with them. Tyrone Tallini in pass rush ends up well, but I think he might actually be a liability in run defense this game. Yeah. So I, I don't... This is a situation where you'd really like to have Spencer Trussell back, especially yeah. for his run defense ability. And if Pickle's healthy, that will actually be big too. Yeah. Uh, I've heard nothing about Pickle being unhealthy, especially because he did return to the game against West Virginia. Uh, I I believe Kleiman said today in his press conference that Trussell will be a game-time decision, which they may end up just holding him out for Texas at that rate, which... So I guess it's Huggins. No, which is Huggins, and, you know, they're much worse players to have in that situation. Yeah. But cause especially because he's versatile enough to take a few snaps at defensive end. Yeah. Uh, but 
I, I absolutely think that they can stay competitive. This is another situation where it's like, man, Khalid Duke was healthy. Like, that changes everything for this defensive line. Because, I mean, then all of a sudden you have a Timmy Horn, Felix Anyduke, Usama, Khalid Duke defensive line. That's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that's next year. Oh, wait, no. Without Timmy Horn, it'll be Matlick, presumably defensive tackle transfer, or yeah. Damon Alalio, and then Nate Matlick, or Felix Anyduke. Yeah. Whichever one I didn't say. You said name Alec the first time. Okay. Then Felix. That's kind of terrifying, but that's next year, not now. Yeah. Um, You got next. Yeah. Um, Will Mess call up some deep play-action shots to take advantage of the secondary? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, he will. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that's his first play call. If yeah. his first play call to catch them off guard is to just play action shot play. Get Malik Knowles on uh, Raleigh Tejada and just try your best to get Malik behind the defense off of play action. Set a tone for the rest of the game because Baylor's not a team that's been down really badly. They've always been in the game except for one, and that's Oki. And whenever... Oki came out guns blazing, no pun intended, with the whole guns up thing. Baylor died. Like, they just outright died on the football field. Yeah. I remember watching that game, and Baylor, they did not. They looked like frauds that game, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, they came out, and they looked awful. Uh, But, honestly, yeah, this is kind of a maybe game script situation that lends itself to K-State West Virginia 2019, where we did open that game with a play-action deep ball to Dalton Schoen on the very first offensive play of the game for, for K-State, and that was a like 75-yard touchdown, I think. So, uh, I, I I think it's a great situation for it. Uh, it worked against KU, granted. Uh, that wasn't a go route at the beginning. At least I don't think it was. It just it was kind of, post. Yeah, it just kind of turned into it. And... Uh, uh, it also was KU because Skyler had more time in the pocket than I've ever seen. <laughs> like, and literally so, could have followed his taxes. We probably could have, and, <laughs> but I, I I do think that we'll see some deep shots at some point. And I do think that you're right, and that it could end up being the first play call of the game if it's not a gap power. So a gap power, a gap power. Yeah. So. Next question is, how much of K-State's game plan will revolve around Petrie? I hope a lot of it, because I don't want to face him. I want him to make, I want to make, I want the game plan, oh my goodness. I want the game plan to make him as little a factor as possible in this game. I I would think that's what we're aiming for. Uh, and that should be what you aim for a lot, um, especially when you're facing a defense that really relies on one guy to do his job. Uh, we, Ace and I, chatted about it, and we compared Jalen Petrie, or at least I did. Uh, I compared Jalen Petrie's role on Baylor to uh, Kenny Logan on KU, in which uh, I do think Jalen Petrie's better than Kenny Logan. By a wide margin. While Kenny Logan was still better than the, everyone else on the KU defense by a wide margin. So... 
Jalen Petrie kind of fills that role on this defense, and K-State took a concerted effort to kind of do anything but go directly at him, other than with Deuce, because Deuce can kind of do whatever he wants. Yeah, Deuce is just playing on freshman difficulty. Pretty much, yeah. And I, I, I think a lot of the game plan will revolve on either avoiding Petrie or taking him out of the equation. Yeah. So... Can K-State stay disciplined against the play action? Given the last time that we were asked to do so was against Oklahoma, I am questioning that. And especially given that our mantra on defense has been play fast, this might give us fits, but this is a big but, and I cannot lie. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I I had to say it at least once on the show. All right. Like, I trust our corners to play discipline and play action. If not because Echo always sniffs out trick plays that are even harder to diagnose. And, yeah, I think our corners and safeties will be able to maintain that. And I don't have enough faith in their receivers to get separation. This is literally a game where I could see Bohannon throwing for fewer than 150. Because he threw, I think, for just... Barely over, barely under against OU. I could be wrong, but I do know he didn't break 200. This could be a game where the receivers just get suffocated and they have to run, which, you know, maybe we bring in bigger personnel to match that. I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how we attack uh, play action of Baylor, which, granted, is something I'm a little worried about. But also, this is a totally different defense than uh, what we saw in that three-game losing streak. Uh, I trust them at this point. Uh, they'll have to unearn my trust at this rate. Uh, the only concern, though, is that we just haven't seen a lot of play action since then. Yep, mob. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm optimistic. I think that they can stay at least relatively disciplined against the play action. I think it won't be our downfall. At, at least. Yeah. So the next question is, which side rides their current momentum better? K-State coming off of a three-game winning streak, four-game winning streak, <laughs> or Baylor coming off of a huge victory against Oklahoma? And honestly, I'm going to give this edge to K-State because... They've gone up against teams that, on paper, they don't necessarily match up well against and have done well. Like, for example, the number one offense in the Big 12 or, like, one of the top offenses in the Big 12 in TCU. We just turned them off. Like, we just didn't let them do anything. Yeah, like, I get that they were a program in turmoil and stuff like that. That doesn't change the fact that they had Quentin Johnson go to, like, two catches for six yards. Like, that, that still happened. And then the following week... Uh, Chandler Morris, the backup QB who did nothing against K-State until the last drive, which was the Eric Munoz show for the (laughs) K-State defense. Uh, He then, after just looking awful against K-State, went for 450 against Baylor and their uh, shocking upset. So it's not as though Chandler Morris was a bad QB when we faced him. He's clearly very talented. So... I, I I like the cats to uh to take advantage of their momentum like if for no other reason than it's another home game it's a senior day so 
keep in mind that Bailey's two losses were both on the road. Yeah, that's another that's another big talking point to keep in mind. Uh, Baylor, uh, unimpressive on the road. Their road wins this year are what Texas Southern and KU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Texas K- State. Texas State. They also play Texas Southern, but that was home. Yeah. Um, also, why are they playing a road game against Texas State? I don't know, but <laughs> it's neither here nor maybe, there. Maybe it was a home and home, but that must be it. I guess so. Neither here nor there. Yeah. So you got next. Yep. Uh, can Skyler carry this offense to victory? Yes, but does he have to? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it for a second. <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, it will be him distributing the ball to Deuce uh, to do exactly that. Because I think uh, this spoils my MVP. Uh, I think it's going to be the Deuce and Malik show for uh, the offense just because of their inability to stop number one archetype receivers and also they struggle to cover running backs in the passing game as well so it only stands to reason that Malik Knowles and Deuce Vaughn should perform well so yeah and then finally the if, if this were Bosco's boys that we would call this our key to V uh, but it's just another story does K-State play turnover free and contain the run because if they do this this will this won't even be close like this will be a like second half Nevada like comfortable victory. Yeah, I my ankle. <laughs> it just does that sometimes. I think K State at least will play turnover free. Uh, I think that one. I, I feel good about it, despite the fact that Baylor does force a lot of turnovers defensively. I think they're best in the Big Twelve at that per play at least, but. K-State is also turning over the ball at a not exorbitant rate on offense. Uh, they also aren't forcing many turnovers defensively. Uh, like uh, West Virginia was a total outlier yeah. for the Cats this season. I mean, that was, what, three turnovers, and K-State is still last in the conference in turnovers forced per play defensively. But uh, I think K-State at least will play turnover-free football uh, Skyler did make some poor choices, but it also gives them a lot of film to self-scout and look at and give Skyler a chance to reevaluate uh, some of his vision and decision-making. And also, I do uh, think Baylor's secondary is notably worse than West Virginia's. Considerably. Yeah, so... Like, their best player is better... Like, Baylor's best player is better than West Virginia's best player, but Baylor's aggregate is much, much lower than West Virginia's. Just because they have Petrie way better than everybody else in that secondary. West Virginia is a very solid secondary as a whole. Yeah. So I think that... uh, uh, I don't even know where I was going with talking about Baylor's secondary. What was I even talking about? I just totally forgot. (laughs) You were talking about how good West Virginia's secondary is. Oh, yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I'm just looking at the outline. I have no idea how I got there. I have totally... I deleted all of my previous memory. <laughs> Anywho. Anywho. I think that we'll play turnover, three, turnover free. And I think that we'll do at least a solid job containing the run. Uh, just considering that's what our defense has been so good at, uh, we have an even better opportunity to just really uh, sell uh, into the run and play a bit more in the box than we're used to. Yeah. 
So now let's get into our projective offensive and defensive MVPs. For offense, we're excluding Deuce again because it's always Deuce. It is. It's always Deuce, and we don't want to give the constant obvious answer. But we both have the same answer this week, which I think is this is like the second time this has happened. I think so. And we both said Malik Knowles exclusively because of how much they struggle with those archetypal wide receiver ones. And if anything, Malik Knowles is built like a true wide receiver one archetype. Yep, that should be his role. Uh, He did not have any receptions against West Virginia and had like one carry for two yards and a big kick return. So he doesn't necessarily always play like a true wide receiver one. But that is his role in our offense, is wide receiver one, and he is built like one, like you said. So I am hoping that this will allow for Malik to have a quality performance because it really has been feast or famine for him this year, yeah. uh, which is kind of common theme for him. Yeah. But Honorable mention could be Tyrone Howell because he's bigger than both of their corners and they have trouble playing in contested catch situations. Something Tyrone Howell does not have trouble doing. As we saw when he <laughs> mossed the real <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> he didn't deserve that. It's his like, first year playing corner, and he has to go up against Tyrone Howell. He's really trying. <laughs> he tried his best, and he will be good, but yeah, just not yet. So defensively, you can go first on this one. Yep. I went with Timmy Horn. Um, I, I feel like Timmy Horn is going... We really need him to blow up the interior offensive line. He's right at the forefront of their rushing attack. And Timmy Horn, I think, is going to be so important to allowing other people to make plays. And while obviously like those people making the plays, they still have to do it. But Timmy Horn, I really want him to show up and take up two blockers there in the middle. Do his job as the nose tackle. And uh, just do Timmy Horn stuff where he just pushes back three players into the backfield and just blows everything up. That's what I want to see from him this week. And honestly, I think he has a good shot at doing it. Uh, a senior day for Timmy, he's already a high-motor player, but I can see him just getting really hyped up senior day uh, just as his last uh, collegiate performance. Because so. you know Stubby's going to come out. With he always comes out with his hair on fire. But Stubby might actually kill someone. <laughs> he may actually break the sound barrier, but... My pick is Daniel Green because he's the most secure tackler and he's the only person that I trust to tackle Abram Smith one-on-one. Everyone else is kind of questionable on that front. But I also think that Daniel Green is fast enough to catch up to Bohannon if he's put in that weird like hybrid linebacker spot instead of the true Mike linebacker. Honestly, if it were me, and it's not me, I'd put Fletcher as like a true Mike linebacker and then put Daniel Green on the edge on, like, like obvious passing downs or, like, third or second and short, something like that. But that's just me. Uh, Daniel Green is my defensive MVP pick. Now we can get into the score projections. And because we are still undefeated when I have conscientiously objected, let's try and keep that train going. I'm conscientiously objecting from giving a score projection, but... If this will be a dogfight, I truly believe in my heart of hearts. Because I've said if, if we contain the run, if we contain the bootleg pass. The reality is, is that oftentimes ifs don't necessarily matter. This will be an absolute dogfight of a game. Like this, this, 
this has the makings of being a mud game. Like, I know it's not possible yeah. for the turf to be muddy, but this very well might turn into what feels like a mud game. And uh, I will still project, as it stands, a Cats victory off of the back of an absolutely nuts performance from Daniel Green. Yeah, uh, I'd love to see Daniel Green show out. Uh, it'd be really interesting for him to show out and take the spotlight on senior day. So, it's said he's not a senior. Yeah. <laughs> But score projections for me, I've got 31 or 34 31 cats. That's the same projection I gave last week for uh, West Virginia. So I got the K State score right. Uh, just did not anticipate West, West Virginia, Virginia being bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I kind of figured, but I also was like, you know, like maybe Letty Brown will get his. But no. He didn't. <laughs> so cats, I give them a slight edge. And uh, that puts them at a five-game winning streak, headed to face the most sorry team of all time in Austin, Texas. God. I I would hate to be a part of that program right now. Andre Coleman, come home. <laughs> like, Xavier Worthy, transfer. Transfer, coward. But that Texas, here, here, transfer here. <laughs> or at least out of conference. Yeah. Like, like, like transfer to Oklahoma. Yeah, somewhere else. Like, yeah, but uh, I I like the cats in this one. Like I am antsy about this game because uh, Baylor is just really quite good. But I, I I think the cats can pull it out, and I I like climbing to two weeks in a row, break his curse against uh, another one of the teams that he has yet to beat. Which grants it's a little early to call it a curse, but people seem to be kind of obsessed with it. Like, that he's, like, 0-2 against some teams. Like, yeah, a lot of people are. (laughs) Okay. But, anyway, also, uh, we didn't have anywhere to put this, but our case about Dave Aranda being a bad coach may be stupid. Yeah. We may be stupid. (laughs) Yeah, that that was perhaps misguided. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not as misguided as Jacardier, right? All big yeah. Uh, save for Justin Gardner, but that, that's or, pretty Or Keenan Garber breakout. At least he had the one big catch against OU. <laughs> like, all right, before we remove all of our credibility, let's stop. <laughs> but that pretty much does it. Thank you all for listening to this edition, this scouting report from the Aggieville Alley Cats. If you want to reach out and contact the show on Twitter, we are at Aggieville A Cats. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in Cats. And we are AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. But if you want to follow us in a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. If you want to support the show in a more financial sense, we have sponsorships turned on and we are looking for more sponsors. But if you want to get something in return for it, please be sure to visit the official Aggieville Alley Cats merchandise store where you can find such designs as Neon Alley Cats and Play Sandstorm Cowards. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this edition of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats.